Word of God. Therefore, as, as you have, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for your word, which we now can come and study. We rejoice in it, for it reveals you to us, what you have done, and what you are doing, and what you will do, and who you are, and what you would have us to do, which we consider this morning in particular. And so we pray for help, not only to hear you through your word, but help to obey you as you command your people in your great grace. Come even now through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1923 when the nations of Scotland and France competed in a track meet. Over the course of the events, the, the teams were neck and neck until they came to one of the final events, the 400. As the runners, who were all clad in their traditional white, came around the first turn, they were bunched incredibly tight, shoulder to shoulder, when one of them was shoved to the ground. He, he did a somersault and rose up quickly and began to run the race. But his race was already quarter over, and he found himself 20 meters behind. And yet he ran with his knees up high and his head flying backwards, he ran. And he finally caught the last runner, and then the next runner, and then the next runner. And coming around the fourth turn, he passed the lead runner on the outside and won the race. You might, you might wonder how he would react after the race was over, after all being pushed down in a very short race. You might wonder if he has, would have stern words for the man who shoved him, maybe a, a finger pointing. In fact, you, you, you might imagine, even if you were in a race of such sort and you were pushed down, would you even get up to complete it? Would you, I mean, uh, you, you, you might just dust yourself off and wave your fist in anger. Not this man. He was known to us in history as the Flying Scotsman. We, of course, know him as Eric Little. His fame only grew the next year in the 1924 Olympics uh, when he refused to run his best event because it was held on Sunday. That was a violation of his own personal Christian convictions. He did take the bronze in the 200, and yet he once again ran the 400. Stayed on his feet the entire time, um, and he won the 400 in world record time, beating the silver medalist by a full five meters. Some have declared that quarter, that was the greatest quarter mile ever run in the 1924 Olympics. But by the way, uh, in case you're wondering, both videos you can watch, uh, both races are on YouTube. And not that I recommend YouTube, but I found it interesting to be able to watch them. Well, it was a year later that uh, Eric Little surprised everyone as his fame was skyrocketing. As, as you know, I think I probably shared with you uh, a bit of his story a few weeks ago that he left for China as a missionary. And there he would serve in China for the next 15 years until 1941. And it was during 1941 as the World War II 
uh, was uh, beginning, and, and China was uh, facing increasing threats from Imperial Japan, that almost all the uh, Western missionaries left China. And Little did send his wife and his three daughters to Canada, where his wife was from, that she might live with her family, but he remained in China. It was less than two years later, 1943, that Eric Little was uh, imprisoned by the Japanese as they invaded China and sent to an internment prison camp. And even there in that prison camp, he cheerfully and joyfully served the poor that were around him. Shortly thereafter, 1945, uh, Eric Little died of a brain tumor at age 43. Uh, many have suggested that the tumor might have been caused by the malnourishment he endured uh, during these days. He was buried, and uh, uh, his grave was marked by a simple wooden cross. The epitaph was written in boot polish. And so, sadly, uh, whatever was written was lost to history. Uh, one biographer says, I don't know what the inscription said, but if I were to imagine one, it would be, he died running. He died running. I think Paul exhorts us to a, a, a kind of a similar commitment, doesn't he? And maybe that's good news to, let, to those of us who are less athletic. Know what he says here in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is uh, many, what many scholars consider the hinge verse in the book of Colossians. You see how it begins, therefore, maybe your translation says, so then, in other words, in light of everything that we've considered heretofore, in light of the foundation that's been set, this is what we now must do. And he tells them what he must do. From this point on in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 6 and following, he's going to tell us what we must do 29 different times. There are 29 commands in the book of Colossians. This is the first one you might be surprised to hear. He hasn't told us to do anything up to this point in Colossians, and yet we get to verse 6, and we find the first command, that is, we are to continue in Christ, or walk in Christ, or to live in Christ. And really, I think that command here in verse 6 will kind of guide us in the rest of our study of the book of Colossians. Continue in Jesus. Let's finish what we started. You, I don't know, you, have you ever started something that you didn't finish? I hear the men laughing in particular. Right? You know, my house is a, a museum to half-completed projects. Right? We, by the way, I will tell you, I, um, just because I've shared this, I did complete the tree house, just to let you know. Three, three plus years, thank you very much. It's still up in the trees. I'm glad that thing's done. But there are plenty of things that I've started that I haven't, haven't completed, and, and I think much of us uh, would uh, testify that we have a similar experience. And yet we're, we're not really giving credit for starting things. It's finishing that the credit comes. If you start a race, I mean, big deal. We want to know if you finish the race. I, I mean, the, the, the doctor begins the surgery. You would kind of like her to finish it, wouldn't you? Um, you want her to see it through. Well, the same is with our faith, isn't it? That we are to keep going in our faith. We are to continue with Christ in our faith. This is what Paul is telling us to do. And, and he's exhorting us to do this, I think, in particular, because not everybody does. In fact, you look over in Colossians chapter 4, we're introduced to an individual in verse 14. We read, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Of course, we know Luke well, don't we? Uh, as does Demas. Demas, good old Demas. 
Well, if you, you, you turn over, you might be interested to find out, we learn about Demas again, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's last book that he would ever write. And he would write in verse 10, I believe it is, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas has walked away. Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, some make a shipwreck of their faith. They, that is, they start well, but they lose their way in the, in the process. They, they run aground, and there seems to be a particular danger for the Colossians as well. As you remember last time, we studied the first verses in Colossians 2, and we saw this verse in verse 4 when Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that there is this opposition to the Colossians, and that they are trying to delude them. It is this opposition to which Paul will return again and again in chapter 2. You note verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There are people who are, are, are trying to push them down in this race. And I would say this is not exclusive to the Colossians. My brothers and sisters in Christ, please understand, you have opponents in your faith. There are those who want you to feel insecure about your faith. There's those who want you to feel foolish about your faith. There are those who want you to feel you're out of step with the world because of your faith. There are those who want you to think there is something you're missing, something because of your faith. You have opposition. And Paul is seeking to solidify the Colossian Christians and I perhaps solidify the Hamilton Baptist Church Christians to tell us, listen, there is nothing missing in Jesus. You're not missing out on anything in Christ. So keep walking with Jesus in the same way as you receive Jesus. In fact, read, read verse 6 very carefully. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So in other words, just in the same way in which you received him, this is how you continue in him. So uh, in order to know how to continue in him, we need to know how is it that we received him. So look again. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You, you received him as the Lord. Christ Jesus as the Lord. If I can just add that, that word as in there to help us understand we receive Jesus as the Lord. This is really the New Testament era basic confession, Christian confession. Right? Romans 10.9, you are real familiar with, aren't you Christian, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Acts 16, we hear this invitation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in order to become a Christian, you receive this man, Jesus, the Christ, as your Lord. So today, we, we don't typically use that language. That's the biblical language of conversion. We, we often today in Western Christianity use this phrase that we're going to accept Jesus into our heart. And, and I, I, I think there's probably some truth to that phrase, but I will tell you, you won't find it in scripture. Um, it, it's not a biblical phrase. And I, to be honest, I'm not sure how helpful it is 
to use the language, I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart. I, I like how the scripture presents it, that we, we become a Christian when we receive Jesus as the Lord, as the ruler, as our great authority. And of course, this, this reference to the Lord is God himself. As the God is called throughout the Bible, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And now we understand that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord. And so the Lord, I think, is in some sense, is the summary of everything that we've learned about Jesus up to this point in the book of Colossians. He is the image of God. He is the son of God. He is the mystery of God. He is the creator of all things. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said the great act of faith is when a man decides he is not God. I think he's half right. I think we need to make that decision. But we need then to go on and decide that Jesus Christ is God. And not just he is God, he is my God, he is my Lord. I think Billy Graham is helpful when he said no man can, can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have an emotional religious experience. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord. So coming to Christ as Lord, just as we have been taught. I love this little phrase here in verse 7. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And here it is. We're going to return to the, the, what we just passed over. But look what he says. Just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. So we need to teach others who Christ is before they can receive him. We ourselves had to be taught who Christ is before we could receive him. The Colossians is the same way. Colossians 1 and verse 6, we discovered that they understood the grace of God in truth. Someone came and told them, a man named Epaphras came and told them about the grace of God that's found in Christ. I, I mentioned that. I just want to point out that phrase, just as you were taught, because I want us to be cautious of a, of a type of evangelism that is very popular in, in the Western uh, Christianity that has very little content of who Jesus is, but is really entirely emotional. It's, like it's very emotional evangelism. And, and, and it's not so much focusing on who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and, and certainly quite often ignoring what Jesus demands of us. I think that's important for us to know. We, we need to know these things about Jesus before we can receive Jesus. Of course, we don't know everything about Jesus. Um, and of course, receiving Jesus is an emotional event. It's an intensely emotional event. There's no doubt of that. But there needs to be a minimum of what we understand of Christ in order to receive him. Namely, we need to understand we're sinners, that we have rebelled against God, and we are liable to the judgment of God. And yet God in his great love and compassion for us sent his son into the world who became a man and lived a perfect life and died upon the cross in order to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, uh, died in our place, bore the wrath of God that was due for me because of my sin. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross, enduring the, the holy anger uh, uh, of God, not for his sin but for mine. And then three days later rose bodily, historically, physically from the dead and now reigns in heaven. We, we, at the minimum, we need to understand that. Who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. We need to present him in this way. In other words, when we're talking to others about Jesus, we don't simply come and say, listen, don't you want a purpose in your life? Jesus will give you purpose. Jesus is the purpose giver. And Jesus is the marriage fixer. And Jesus is the peace supplier. And, and, and Jesus is the companion, companionship provider. 
right? And of course, Jesus can be the, all of those things, but we need to present ultimately Jesus as the sinner Savior and as the Lord of heaven and earth. And it's based upon that understanding that we receive Jesus as Lord. Have you? Have you received Jesus as your Lord? If you haven't, the Bible says that you are in darkness. In darkness of sin, in darkness of coming judgment. There are so many who live in darkness, who are blind in that darkness, blind to the glory of Christ, blind to their need of mercy, blind to the coming wrath of God. And it is into that darkness out of his great love that God unleashed the brilliance of the glory of his grace found in Christ, the brilliance of his holiness on Calvary's hill. And it is that light that shines into the darkness. And Jesus says, the darkness cannot overcome it. May, may you all, may we all see the light and come to Christ. If you have not come to Christ, maybe you're watching on our live stream Please understand that you can receive Jesus as Lord right now, this very moment, wherever you sit, wherever you might be, right now, you can go from darkness to light. You can go from being alienated to God to being reconciled to him by receiving him as your Lord. And for us who have, it is as we have received him as Lord, so in that same way we walk in him. So uh, that's how my translation puts it. Maybe your Bible says continue in him or live in him. Walk just kind of as a reference, a metaphor to our ongoing life. So we keep going with Jesus. We received him as Lord. Now we keep walking with him as Lord. So when you walk through the grocery store, and when you walk through your home, and when you walk through your office, and when you walk through your classroom, you are at that point totally governed by your king, by your Lord. You walk in him. That is, you are going to live your life in obedience to him, under his direction, and you continue to do so. I'm going to walk with Jesus. Here we go. I'm going to leave this building in a little while. We're, I'm, and who am I going with? I'm going with Jesus. I'm going to walk with him. And I ask you why, why would you, why would you ever want to leave Jesus? Why would you not want to walk in Jesus? Have you found something better than Jesus? I would say you have not. There is no one of greater rank than Jesus. There is no one of greater worth than Jesus, there was no one of greater love than Jesus, there was no one of greater beauty than Jesus, no one of greater wisdom, no one of greater compassion, no one of greater power than Jesus. It is true that with Christ we do find purpose in life, and it is with Christ we do find peace in trouble, and it's with Christ we do find abounding joy, and it's with Christ we do find abundant life. It is with Christ. Don't you want to walk with that one? He's the one who made the mountains and the stars and, and the seas, and you might think, and I get to walk with him? He's the one who, who, who created the cosmos, and he's the one who holds you together by the word of his power this very moment, and you think, I get to walk with him? He's the one who heals the blind and loves the sinful and confounds the proud and rules the universe, and he is the one you get to walk with? Yes, please. And thank you very much. I would like to go walking with him. It is Pastor Brian Davis who says we walk happily under the sunshine of his providence. We walk focused on the hope of his gospel. We walk 
guided under the domain of his direction. We walk captivated by his glory. We walk with head held high as a satisfied saint of God and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, Christian, who cares about the latest gadget? And who cares about the latest inane show on your Netflix? We have Jesus. You have Jesus. And you get to walk with him. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so now, my brother and my sister, walk in Jesus. And Paul will then go on in verse 7 and elaborate four ways to walk in him. So if continuing or walking in Jesus is the tabletop, the four legs are found in verse 7 that hold that up. Each presented in a participle. A participle is just a helping verb or a subservient verb. So the main command is to walk in Jesus. And then he has these four little commands that help us understand how it is that we are to walk in him. We might say the first command is to be nourished by him. Nourished by him. Note what he says there in verse 7. Rooted. Rooted and built up. We'll come back to that in him. So rooted in him. There's a point in John's gospel where Jesus is saying goodbye to his apostles. He gathers them privately. It's called the farewell discourse. It goes from John 14 through John 16. And Jesus says, I'm, I need to leave you now. And um, it's going to get really, really crazy once I'm gone. And it will be, he tells them, listen, it will be unbelievably amazing and unimaginably hard. And so what must you do? Well, we come to John 15, and he says, you need to abide in me. In fact, I counted the, the number of times in John 15 Jesus uses the word abide. Eleven times, I think in like ten verses or so. Abide in me, abide in me. I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Attach yourself to me. Remain connected to me. That is, get your life from me like, a, like a, 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 a branch attached to the vine is nourished through that vine. Be nourished by me. And he even tells us how. Because he says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. And so we receive this nourishment. We're rooted in Christ. We're attached to him. When his word is in us, in fact, we'll read, I can't wait to preach it, Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so uh, we, we, we need to regularly reflect on God's word and discuss God's word and sit under the preaching of God's word as we might consider his character and his promises and his work and his love and his purposes and his commands that Christ's word would dwell in us. And when it does, and as we allow it to remain there, the Bible tells us there is going to be growth in our life. There's going to be nourishment in us. In fact, this idea of rooted conveys a, a sense of strength, doesn't it? A rootedness is strong. God willing, in a couple months, you're going to be walking by your garden, and there's going to be a weed about ankle high, and you're going to reach down, and you're going to pull that weed up, and yet it will not budge. You think, how can this be? It's four inches tall. Why is it not coming up? Well, because it's rooted. It's rooted. And the world is going to try this week, this day perhaps, to uproot you. 
how is it that you're going to remain? How is it you're not going to be budged? Well, because you are rooted in Christ. Jesus will tell us in Luke chapter 8, the, the parable of the four soils. He'll mention that there, there are some who are like this stony soil who receive the word with joy, Jesus says, but because they have no root, they believe for a while, and yet in a time of testing, they fall away. And so we discover, don't we, our rootedness in times of testing, times of trouble, times of temptation, times of trials. And many, many disciples, many Christians look glorious. They look like this flourishing, healthy tree only to be blown over in, a, in the storm of trial and temptation. Like Demas would be an example, perhaps. And of course, we don't even need to look in Scripture to find it. You know people like that. Start with Christ, and then the trial comes, and they are, they are blown over. They are, the, the rootless Christian withers in those circumstances. The rooted disciple, he survives the drought because he is not de dependent upon the pleasant rain of circumstances. The, the rooted disciple flourishes in the hurricane because his roots continue to draw strength from Christ. Are you rooted in Jesus? That is, are you nourished by his word and his presence, not seeking your nourishment from the lovely circumstances around you? Because the storm of temptation is coming if you're not in it right now. And if you are rooted in Christ, you will not be blown into sin. The drought of fear and anxiety is coming. And if you are rooted in Christ, you will not stop bearing fruit. Listen, these things are going to happen. Young people, listen to me. You're going to lose friends in life. And it is going to be hard. You're going to lose your reputation. Some of us are already lost our health. You know what that's like. Others of us will lose our health. We're going to lose jobs, we're going to lose ease, we're going to lose certainty. And yet the Christian continues to bear fruit in those circumstances precisely because they are rooted in Jesus. Take, for example, the Matthew family, another uh, of those sweet followers of Christ who served as missionaries in China. Uh, the Matthew family after, were living there after the communist takeover in China in the early 50s. They would live under communist rule for two years with their little daughter in a shack. It was a one-room shack. Their only furniture was a three-legged stool. That was the only piece of furniture they had in the house. For those two years, they had no other contact with other Christians for fear of the communist government. They had zero income for two years. They heated their home with a, a small a wood, a, a stove but they had no wood, they had to collect animal refuge to burn as a source of heat for their home. And once a day, they were given by the government a rice, which was their only meal for the day for two years that they would boil a pot of rice upon that stove. Two years they lived like that. And you think that sounds like quite a drought, doesn't it? And yet when they write their autobiography, they entitled the book, green leaf in drought times as they testify that those who are rooted in Christ do not wither even under the most intense trouble. They even continue to bear fruit 
we are to be nourished by him. Secondly, you notice we are to be grounded in him. He changes the metaphor there, doesn't he? In verse 7, he says rooted, a horticultural metaphor, and built up in him, a construction metaphor. We are, we are to be well-built homes in Christ, if you will. And, and, of course, to build a home, it requires a plan, requires strategy, requires intentionality. And I will tell you, every mature Christian that you've ever admired has gotten to that point intentionally. That is, you will never meet a thriving, mature saint in Christ who neglects the word of God, who neglects the church, who neglects the Lord's Supper, who, who neglects a commitment to prayer. It is, in fact, in Acts chapter 2, when we learn about the first church, we see this glor glorious passage, Acts 2, verse 42, I believe it is, in which uh, the first church is described in this way, that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, they are devoted to fellowship, they are devoted to the breaking of bread, and they are devoted to prayer. They are devoted to these things, and they are therefore flourishing and being built up in Christ. My question for you in light of that, Christian, is are you likewise devoted? Would you say, yeah, I'm, I'm devoted to those things. I'm, I'm, I'm giving myself to them. Or are you, like I think many Christians find themselves to be, a half-built project? find yourself today to be a bit stagnant. What is your plan this week, Christian, for building up your life in Christ? You remember when uh, you first came to Christ, for some of us had this experience, especially if we came to Christ at a later time in our life. When you, when you first come to Christ, you remember the, the joy in Christ you had? And, and like you just couldn't get enough of Jesus, like everything changed. And uh, I, I know I share what God has done in my life probably too often, but I can't help but remember when this 17-year-old kid uh, found Christ. I, I read the Bible um, in about two months um, the, from, from Genesis to Revelation. And I just, I, not, not to pat myself on the back, I just was, I was, I was blown away that God wrote a book. I mean, it's just stunning. It was stunning to me. God, you know, up in heaven, he wrote a book. And he gave it to us to read. I got to read the book that God wrote. And I, I, would, I would two, three times a week go to my youth pastor David's office after school. I would drive over after school and knock on his office door and say, David, I read these three old, uh, books in the Old Testament last night. I have some questions. And it would just be one after another. I just, I just, it was so glorious to me that, that God had actually given us a book and that we got to study it. And I, I remember as a 17-year-old, I would show up to church about 45 minutes early. Uh, I just couldn't wait to get there. I'd be like the first person there at church. And, and you know why? Because I was, I was on that day going to gather with God's people. God actually had a people, which I get to be part of now. And I was going to sing songs to God. And God in the heaven was going to listen to me sing. Now, most people don't want to listen to me sing. Okay? Um, God does. God wants me to sing to him. And I was just blown away by this idea that just a matter of weeks ago, I hated God. 
and now I get to sing to God, and I get to praise God, and I get to worship God, and I would stay at church until they locked the doors and turned off the lights because that's where the people of God were, and I got to be with God's people. I mean, I remember that, that kid I was, I was frantically, by God's grace, building upon this foundation, this building and building and building as fast as I possibly could build. And yet, some, somewhere down the path, the building project slows down, doesn't it? Whatever it's slowing down for you, the fire dies down a little bit, doesn't it? so easy to grow cold to Christians. It's so easy to become complacent. It's so easy to be satisfied with a half-built house. And as bad as that is, you know what we sometimes do? We actually normalize our complacency. And a new believer comes by, and they're hot, and they're passionate, and we are thinking, if we're not saying, you need to calm down a little bit. Hey, those hands are raised a little too high. Right? Those amens are a little too loud. Right? The, the, the eagerness is a little too bold. And rather being, than being 